Hi, I'm Abhi Schengen, founder of EndUser, and co-hosting with me today is nobody because Stephen Mayle, co-founder of Inbound, just got off a flight and is feeling pretty sick, so I'm going to be flying solo today. And this is our podcast. It's called Straight Up, um, which is a podcast focused on human-centered people and companies. Um, we will be hosting mostly Kiwis, some international um, guests from different industries to tell us about their journey, their experiences, and what being human-centered centered means to them. Um, our guest today is Lori Valenzuela. Uh, Lori is head of digital and online sales at Fonterra. She has more than 20 years of experience in sales and transformation programs. She's passionate about customer-led design and delivering value to the customer and stakeholders. Um, Lori spent the last 11 years at Fonterra and has a fascinating journey uh, leading up to it. And we're very excited um, to have her on our podcast today. I keep saying we because yeah, you know, yeah. because of Stephen, but he's not here. He's excited. He's, he's excited. Not here. He's excited from afar. <laughs> All right. Um, okay, cool. Should we let the music roll? Awesome. Welcome, Lori. Thank you, Avi. Good to be here. Yeah, happy to have you here. Um, we thought maybe before we dive into the meaty questions. Yes. Um, can you just give us a bit of a timeline of your professional career um, from uni? Yeah, we could spend a lot of time on this, but maybe I'll go. I tend to be succinct, so happy to dive in with any questions that you have. Um, I went to university at the University of Nebraska mm-hmm. in Lincoln, right in the middle of the U.S., um, largely an agricultural school. And um, as I understand it, school's a little different here, or university's different here than it is in America. We're very much a generalist uh, approach to education. Um, So I squandered around trying to figure out what I wanted to be, spoke to a lot of advisors, and they kept pointing me towards nutrition um, to the point where I just, I didn't feel particularly passionate about it, but it felt like what everybody thought I should do, and I did it. Um, So I studied nutrition, um, was picked up quite well. And when you study nutrition, you usually go on to become a dietitian, and it's almost like the draft, where you're allowed to apply for three schools, three internships, and then they select you. And if you don't get selected, that's it. Uh, well, then you do something else. Like so, so, you wouldn't be registered. You'd be more of a nutritionist. Uh, so I was uh, recruited from. Uh, uh, a veterans affair program outside Chicago. So I went and you study uh, different elements of uh, dietetics. So I studied in the hospital environment and the community environment, food service environment. So you just get this this breadth of knowledge, mm-hmm. and you sit for your exams. Uh, so after that, I went and uh, I liked the community stuff because uh, I felt like it it had a longer it was more focused on people whereas it when you work in the hospital it's more focused on turnaround so mm-hmm. in hospital stays are so short you can't really implement change whereas if you go into the community you could kind of get to know your client base and make a difference mm-hmm. um, so I worked with low-income women and children teaching them uh, how to feed their kids better so I worked in yeah it was pretty cool uh, it was interesting how um, how hardened you get to that type of thing so quickly, even though you're young and you want to change the world. Um, yeah, but I've learned a lot about working with people and thinking about what motivates people. Um, why do they decide, you know, why did they decide one thing over another? Um, how nutrition isn't important um, when you don't know if the, your lights are going to be on. Um, so there's just, you know, how things start prioritizing in people's lives. Um, after I did that for a little bit, I wanted to go back to school. So I, uh, my, hus- my now husband, then not husband, uh, he had dreams of being a politician. So we went to Washington, D.C. And so he went to pursue his political career. And I walked onto the campus of University of Maryland and found myself an advisor. And so uh, that's honestly what happened. I walked on. I found an advisor that uh, sat both... Uh, in the nutrition camp and the food science camp, and he happened to run a dairy lab. And so he hired me to work in his lab and study all things dairy and then got my school paid for. So I was able to study flavor chemistry, um, and I happened to focus on cheese, which is strange in retrospect. Was that your master's? Yeah, that's my master's. So completed my undergrad, worked for a couple years, Mm -hmm. and then went back to specialize. 
Mm-hmm. And um, that took me probably three years to complete my master's. And then um, it's funny living on the East Coast of the States. That's not generally where the food companies are. Um, so I found my first corporate position in more of a, a food service company. So um, and they slotted me in working in their healthcare divisions, working with chefs and um, helping chefs create um, meals that were both nutritious, but it could be standardized. Mm-hmm. So thinking about how I play, right. how I m- might apply okay, nutrition healthy. over food science, and I did that for a couple of years. Right. Yeah, so that was really cool. That had me out working in the culinary space, um, thinking about um, thinking about how people prepare meals. And so what's going on in that industry is that you have a lot of low-income labor, or I think that's the right way to describe it, uh, but, but they haven't been culinary trained, but yet we're, they're cooking for patients and we need to get consistency in, in product. So you kind of have to get into the, the mindset of the food prep people mm-hmm. and think about how do we, how do we prepare, re- create recipes that are easily reproduced at mass scale. Um, so that, that got me thinking again. It started to get me thinking about humans and how they think as, right from the very beginning and making sure that we're designing things that, that were um, usable. I lived in Washington, D.C. through a tumultuous time, so I lived there through um, anthrax. I lived mm-hmm. on, the, on the hills. Literally, so we lived um, between the armory and the Capitol building. Wow! So, so there was ten right blocks the between those. Um, so we lived in anthrax when we didn't get mail for a year, and when we did, it would be <laughs> oh my God. yellow because they had, it had been through all the processing and the and the heat processing. We lived through nine eleven, where uh, the morning after tanks rolled up our right in front of our apartment, and we started having people with machine guns on the corner. Our of our streets, and then we lived through um, the sniper, and it was after the sniper that I don't know if you guys heard about that here, but there was a man um, in a white van that was going around for I don't know if it was months or weeks, but just randomly shooting people. Oh my god! Yeah, and that's when uh, my partner and I said, "Well, it's time to go home." <laughs> to go home somewhere else. We'll just go, go back to Chicago. Let's go. Let's just go more in the middle. Yeah, we were aiming for Chicago. We landed in Wisconsin. Worked for about a year doing at a mom and pops type nutraceutical company. It wasn't my thing. And then I was uh, recruited by Nestle. Mm. And that's when I got into sales. Right. <laughs> you made it to sales. I made it to sales. So between. Uh, uh, graduate school and Nestle. I started Nestle in 2004, so just about five years. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Nice. So, and and how was your transition from nutrition to sales? Or it was hard because from, yeah. it, was, it was a mind shift change for me because when I think about a salesperson, at that time I thought about a car salesperson. Yeah. And I thought... Uh, it as possibly being manipulative, manipulative. Um, maybe not a good use of my brain power, um, and I'm an introvert, and the thought of talking to people all day was exhausting, yeah. just to even think about it. Mm. Um, what was different about the role with Nestle is that they were recruiting uh, people that had nutrition backgrounds or nursing backgrounds. So and they were really wanted to get the word out around the science behind their product, mm. and it was different because it wasn't coerce, coercive. It was more about um, spreading the news. So it wasn't like a bunch of business school people trying to sell a product, just spread the research. Yeah, it was spread the, the research, and uh, it was interesting as well because it was infant formula. Mm-hmm. So when you when I joined the program, they they basically put me through four weeks of training, and it was all about dairy, and I had just become out of doing dairy, uh, so it was all about learning about whey and casein, and uh, the goodness of dairy, and how different dairy components are beneficial for allergy prevention. Did you actually have to do any well, we, sales? Not, sales. And I'm the, doing quotations. Yeah, yeah, in quotes. <laughs> in quotes. We were measured by. Um, Oh, so it's interesting. So the way infant formula works in the U.S., it's about product placement rather than product sales in some ways. Yeah. Ultimately, where the sales reps sit. Um, so my job 
was to make sure that that formula was on the available for doctors and nurses in the offices so that when new parents came in and they if they were having an issue uh, breastfeeding or with her current formula that they had an alternative mm. Um, so that's it's so it's getting a medical recommendation through to the parents, right? Or and then how I was uh, measured was having our hospital discharge bags and available in a hospital, mm. so that when a mom would have a baby, they always in America and I, it's different in different countries and it's quite controversial. Um, you get like a gift you basket. get a gift bag and it's from an infant formula company. Okay, yeah. And so that's what our job was. Any mm-hmm. funny stories or anecdotes that you can think of? Uh, I learned period? so much. Uh, I funny stories. Where I think of when I think about this. I think about the times that I've had to sneak into hospitals mm. because there's quite a. Some hospital systems have an elaborate security approach. Yeah, and I have been known to find stairwells when <laughs> when they won't let me in. Yeah, because the the trick is try try to get up in front of the the nurses on the floor. Right, and yeah. oftentimes you have to go through multiple people to get there. Um, so, I you know part of the training is being creative. Yes, I also, um, and I don't know if this is funny if this is what you're looking for. The uh, my reflection here is also thinking I had um, a child at the time when I was I was actually hired and in labor at the same time. Oh, wow. Literally. And um, so I was nursing my own baby, <laughs> and I had times, so I'm driving this van around, and when my manager would come with me, I'd, I would always have to pump in the van. So she would be driving the van, and I'd <laughs> be in ironic. the back <laughs> in my infant formula yes. van, um, which was white, by the way, which was terrible. Like, a, it was a whole milk minivan. And I would be pumping and just trying to make everything work Somebody as a working mom. Accidentally was looking in. They're like, "This oh. is where the formula is coming from." I know. I'd be, kind of, yeah, I'd be <laughs> bent down. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing I remember about that job is um, trying to think about how I influence people, how I would best influence people's behavior. And oftentimes, the best way for me to do that would be to show up at night shifts. Mm-hmm. Because when I thought about who was offering infant formula, it often happens at the night when the moms are tired and they want to sleep. So I would, I would sleep for a couple hours and I'd get up around 11 p.m. and I'd show up at the hospitals. It's <laughs> very innovative <laughs> and surprising. Well, know them. your customers, right? Know yeah. the people, know the struggle. It's well, because nobody journey. visited them, mm. and they were the ones that were making the decisions. And that's probably why the hospital wouldn't let you in at mm-hmm. night. Uh, you know, <laughs> visiting hours are over. Mm-hmm. Oh, that is awesome. Yeah, it's so, a fun, really fun job. So how long um, were you doing that specific sales at Nestle? Uh, about five years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I did that job and also had other jobs on, like on the side hustles within the Nestle organization mm-hmm. um, that kept me learning and engaged for that time. And then straight from Nestle, you moved to Fonterra. Yeah. So, so how um, did that happen? A recruiter started calling me, and I wasn't looking. Um, and I was saying, I'm not interested. And then I started to get calls from somebody else, and I couldn't understand how they were. I didn't know what they were ta- saying. They were had an accent. <laughs> and I, they talked really fast, and slowly over time, I... In retrospect, I mean, the story is it's the hiring manager from New Zealand calling me. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was so persuasive, you know, to just come meet me. Just, you know, you know what have you got to lose type of thing. Uh, so I, <laughs> <laughs> I, but you knew all the tactics <laughs> yeah. coming from sales. Well, yeah, and I mean, but I'd never. It's so funny. One of the first things they asked me is, do you know where New Zealand is? And I said, no. Uh, you know, do you know anything about our company? I said, no. Um, which is interesting because Nestle is one of Fonterra's biggest companies. Mm. Um, so the Fonterra mentality is, of course, you know who we are. Um, whereas Nestle is such a big organization and it works within silos. Like, I don't, I had no idea who the milk suppliers were. Right. But anyways, I, um, yeah, I remember getting a call and being in a hospital parking lot and I didn't have any appointments for the day. And they said, this is where we're at. 
Hmm. So they were in the States. They were in the States visiting on one, doing some recruitment. They were opening a, a new office in Chicago. Oh, okay. And so I just, on the fly, said, okay, I'll stop by. I showed up an hour later. Mm-hmm. And within a, yeah, I met them. Before I left, they had me taste, take some computer exams. Really? <laughs> and I thought, this is so strange because I, you know, I, would, I have no intention to be here. I, but yeah, I agreed to take exams and... Next thing I know, I was offered a job. Then and then? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> that is hilarious. Yeah. What it, kind of exams? Like personality? It must have been. I don't remember. I just, I remember, I can remember the setting, and I don't know wh- why I said yes, but I said, yeah. You I, want to make sure you're not a psycho I before think it was a personality you. exam, um, maybe <laughs> awesome. some type of fit exam. And I don't know what happened with results, mm. but it must have come out okay. Mm-hmm. And then um, they offered a job, and I decided, well... Everything happens for a reason. Uh, let's go. Yeah. And what was your position there? Uh, so I, my first position within this, within Fonterra, excuse me, was um, I was a key account manager. So I looked after their biggest nutrition customer, which was Abbott Nutrition, mm-hmm. um, which was a good fit for me because uh, really it was about helping Abbott by Fonterra Ingredients for innovative products. So pediatric, medical, sports, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And I did that for a couple of years. That developed into a global innovation manager role. Um, still in Chicago. Still in Chicago. It was in a global capacity. Mm-hmm. So I was doing some some nice traveling around to to meet different, uh, different people at innovation hubs and manufacturing mm-hmm. plants and that type of thing. And um, just trying to change the change the relationships to be that of one that was more consultative um, mm. or partnering rather than transactional. Yeah. So trying to because Fonterra is being such a big organization, we're very good at um, selling large volumes. Mm-hmm. Um, our opportunity is to sell higher value item into more technical type of specification. So I did that. I was in the Chicago office for nearly five years and um, then had the opportunity to move to New Zealand and move my family to New Zealand um, Mm -hmm. because um, we were really starting to focus on creating a global uh, capability base for our sales team. And um, they thought, yeah, so I was interested and in, um, I was able to bring a salesperson's perspective to capability. So my role was really to make sure that, um, to create a, to make sure and to just basically to create and deliver a capability program so that we would have consistency across our global sales force and how we sell, mm. but have enough tweak in it that there would be some local um local tailoring yeah. to, to deliver right. to those specific yeah, yeah, yeah. needs, which is right. So again, it's, it's about thinking about who we're trying to sell to. Um, so it's about having a level of standardization. I, I, you know, it's kind of like 80% standard, 20% custom. So mm-hmm. um, basic things like you should always ask a lot of questions and you should understand who you're speaking to. Yeah. Um, everybody should be doing that. struggle with this. It's so hard. Yeah. We well, talk so much more than we listen. That's true. And people, I don't know, I find some companies are just scared to go and, mm. and ask because, oh, well, what about true. the negative feedback? And Or what if they ask, what if they answer something I can't deliver? That's right. So you can't better. unask it. That's right. Yeah, so can you tell us a little bit about the transformation Fonterra went um, through the time since you started with them to now, which you, it's still pro- progressing yeah. uh, in terms of a customer experience or human, uh, human-centered human mm. and be focused on who you're trying to sell and how we mm. deliver them the best value. Yeah, so I, I guess one of the... It's, I'm pausing before I, I react, and I think it's the word that transformation that I'm pausing on because oh, okay. I think it's... Um, it's ongoing. Yeah, I think it's more an evolution. <laughs> okay, yeah. And nice. I don't I like think it. it's... I don't think it happens in a finite period of time. I mm-hmm. think it's slowly chipping away, and maybe that's the nature of a large organization. Mm. Um, so the program that of work that I'm working on is about, is focused on creating a, an end-to-end 
platform for our customers to interact with us and have more access to information um, mm-hmm. and really to to help our customers feel more in control of their business with us. Um, how this got from an idea to um, a piece of work started with human-centered design. Um, so when I took up the role of head of online sales, people had ideas about what we could do. Um, probably had more ideas about what we can't do, <laughs> but I, I, I got both yes. sides of it. But we didn't have any experience to look back on. Mm-hmm. Um, so after uh, a lot of discussions and a, a lot of uh, work, had convinced the organization, or certainly the leadership within the part of the business I work, to go out and ask our customers. And for some reason, we've never done this before. And I think it's, I think it's just historical. Um, it's based on historical behavior of the account manager owns the relationship, so they know everything about the customer. Mm. So if you need to know anything, just ask them. Mm. Um, whereas what we wanted to do was not get second or third-hand information about what drives a customer's behavior. We wanted to see it for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to be able to to rise above the opinions and be able to say, no, this is what the customers have told us. Um, I felt like that set us up for the, the to deliver the most success um, and to get things moving as fast as possible um, because we spend a lot of time thinking, making our stakeholders happy and trying mm-hmm. to make sure that everybody's heard. Sometimes it's hard to really just move forward. Yeah. Um, but if you go, if you think about well, what's the end user need, mm-hmm. then some of that other stuff goes away, um, and it doesn't. Maybe it doesn't go away fully because we still need to have a business mindset. But it's it's easier to balance the two. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing if they didn't do it before, talking yeah. to the customer by that point. Um, there might have been some pushbacks maybe because they said, well, we never needed to. Yeah, that's right. Um, So were you able to measure it or show, well, look how quicker we got things done or look at the value we're delivering or am I stepping on some toes right now asking that question? Oh, no, not at all. (laughs) No, it's funny because I don't think anybody's ever said, ooh, that was a great idea. I don't think it's been an, Mm. an explicit it just organically happened? Well I, well, I mean, it's not like we did it and people said, it's not, I guess what I'm trying to say is once we got approval, mm-hmm. then what's so interesting, and I think this is more of a human behavior thing, people f- forget that they ever objected. Mm. Right. Well, that's nice. And I think we're, we're talking about this in a coaching circle this morning, and it's, uh, somebody was saying that there's a bit of science behind it. So that idea that when you're up against a decision... Even if it's like, do I buy an iPhone or a Samsung, and you think it's the biggest decision in your life, if you go back and ask that person a year later, do you wish you would have done something different? Yeah. And then they'll defend you no, know, whatever choice they were. Mm. So, and I feel like that plays out here as well, where once you get over the hurdle of convincing people, then they can't see it any other way sometimes. Right. But if you convince them to the point where they're like, that was a, the right decision, that is yeah. the decision we're going to, that's fantastic. Yeah, well, so I th- yeah, so it didn't fail. Okay, wonderful. And we're getting good results. <laughs> yeah. So people don't, everyone takes credit for it. Though. That's right. If it that's goes bad, thing. they're going to blame you. Then they blame, and then there's one person. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's, like, that's how it works. <laughs> yeah, okay, awesome. So since you were there when they when you first started using mm-hmm. these kind of methodologies what would you suggest or advise companies uh, not necessarily as big as Fonterra mm-hmm. or as big as Fonterra who hear about all this mm-hmm. human centered design and we should be more human centered but they don't know where to start they don't mm-hmm. know how to train their people how to convince their people yeah to that this is the right thing to do especially if they haven't done it before i think it's about the language we use so if i was wrote a paper on human-centered design, I don't think anybody would look at it. Right. If I, <laughs> just as if we talked about customer experience, uh, certainly a couple of years ago, nobody wanted to hear about it because it wasn't tangible. So it's one of the things... On tangibility. Uh, you know, having to have had several attempts at this and skinning my knees along the way is, was trying to get, was getting the language right. So um, moving from talking about 
um, customer experience and human-centered design to what's it's going, what it's going to deliver for the business. Um, so talking more in terms of business results, linking mm-hmm. it with strategy, that's the type of things, that's the type of um, language or approach that w- was able to help us move forward. The, also th- the other thing that we did, it, the very final tweak that, was, that got us over the line was scope. Mm. So really creating a safe space and s- saying, this is the scope we're after. We're yeah. just going to try it. You know, um, and being able to speak to it in that terms versus this sweeping forever project that goes end to end and that it w- and it's going to affect every enthusiasm part. Yeah. Focus. Yeah. Mm. Whereas if we can, if we say, actually, it's just we're going to play in this space. We're just going to look at these channels and these customers, and then we'll come back to you mm. with some recommendations. And it reduces the fear of fail, yeah. of failure for the business and for the people who said, yes, let's do it. Yeah. Uh, it makes it more, and if it works, mm-hmm. you make the scope a bit bigger and yeah. you try something else. Yeah. Mm, that's a very smart approach. Mm. So Fonterra is quite a big organization. It's a mm-hmm. big corporate. It's, it's international. Mm-hmm. How do you individually um, create change within such a large organization? My perspective is usually coming from, it's usually I, I form up some idea in my head and it's about influencing and trying to think about how it fits with other people's agendas or <laughs> uh, agenda sounds negative, but um, no, it's what good. they're t- trying to drive. It's the truth. It's selling. Yeah, exactly. It's all selling. Um, so in, in that way, it has to have business sense. Mm. And then you have to believe in it because it takes a lot of... Um, the right word when you try and you try and you try persistence <laughs> persistence yeah. resilience mm. um, you just have to be able to it's that type of thing um, so when you think about impacting change in a big organization it's just chipping away at it mm. in retrospect um, and and when I think about the program that we're working on now which is um, about building that platform for our customers Mm-hmm. Um, we continue to chip away at it and we continue to get people's buy-in. At the very beginning, it was it was almost a step at a time. And at the time, as well, we talked a lot. We did, I always called it a road show, but it was saying the same thing over and over and over again. And I think that's one thing that I've learned is that you don't have to say it differently and you don't have to create a new slide deck every time. Yeah. Um, but we had a set of... I think it was eight posters, and I was using those almost every day and telling the same message to a different audience every day. Mm. Um, so in that way, making change in a big organization is just can be about getting the word out um, and saying the same message. And I almost think it makes it simpler to say that use the same props and the same message so that people can start to understand wh- what you're saying because mm. I don't think people get it the first time. And, and it can be hard, but you have to maintain that focus and keep going and keep going. Mm-hmm. So were you by yourself or did you have a team um, that was pushing that specific message or trying to get it? Yeah, well, the, so by that time, when we were trying to get over the line, hmm. I felt um, there was a couple believers, but there's probably some non-believers and a whole lot of people just waiting to see what happened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then Which once you usually. get it over the line, yeah. then people are coming. Yeah. And they said, oh, we thought it was great from the start. Yeah, that's right. What's that <laughs> video of that guy? It was, it's a video of a man dancing at a music festival. Mm-hmm. It's called The Lone Nut. Okay. And he gets up. Have you seen it? No. So he's this guy, and he's, he has just a pair of shorts. I don't even think he has a shirt on. He's dancing with his beard, and he gets up and dances. Everybody's watching him, and they're watching him. And then one person joins them, and then there's two of them. I they're know kind this. Of no, what am I saying? And then they start coming, and by the end of it, everyone. I thought has I read the party. about it. It's, it's, it's a like, video. Oh, okay, no, um. I definitely. And it's like, oh, when he's by himself, he's a nutter. Yeah. But when people are joining him, he's a leader. He's like, That's right. <laughs> Maybe you told me about this when we had a chat. Maybe I have. 
Um, I've heard this. And I'm not likening myself to that. Um, but it does, when we talk in these <laughs> terms, it does make me think about mm. just human human behavior, behavior. Yeah. Um, and their willingness to join in on something new. Because if you don't have a strong opinion about it, mm. right? So yeah. you're like, you're listening to some ideas, you don't know if everybody's going to go for it. So you're kind of waiting. Yep. Unless you feel, okay, this is the right thing. So then you you believe and you join the, yeah. the team who's trying to get it over the hurdle. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, you know, if you have no input, yeah. you're not sure. Yeah. You're just watching for now. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, they see. But then once it works, yeah. you do become the leader. Yeah. You become the face of that idea. Right? Yeah. yeah. Then it beca- it, if it's really big, it can become a movement. Mm. Um, yeah. It just kind of depends on the scale of whatever you're working on. Yeah, true. Mm. So like you said, Fonterra is um, is distributing globally um, their products, uh, 34 countries, I think. Mm-hmm. How? So, okay, we make it human-centered. We're trying to, to understand our customers' value. Like you said, there's 20% that is customizable mm-hmm. and 80%. How do, you, how do you start a project with that in mind, that everything that you do might be very different in different countries? Mm. What things do you decide, oh, that should be customizable, that's normal, that... Quite a lot of research goes into it or trying. Because hmm. I think I what do. we're thinking about, too, because we're not, not talking about our ingredients because hmm. we do have literally thousands of uh, well, specifications. Well, then. I'm thinking maybe on approach. I'm thinking of your platform. but Yeah. yeah. Okay, so if we think but about maybe. the platform, so that's, um, I think that's even a little different. So if we think about that 80-20 rule, that's pretty doable when you, uh, in regards to, um, a human interaction. It's actually hard to get 80-20 standardization versus customization in a human-to-human type of, of engagement course. because people want, people are hard. People are hard want f- very specific <laughs> yeah, things yeah, to, yeah, yeah. to specific needs. That's what I'm right. saying. It's like even per company, yeah, that's they would right. want a specific, specific yeah, yeah. solution. So in that way, so in, in what we were doing, that specific example was about how we, what's the brand of our salesperson? Are, what kind of questions do they ask? How do they engage with us? Um, how well do they know the products they're selling? So it, it was very, it's very much a, a capability, very much a, a behavior approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and the customization centers more around um, col- cultures and language. And in Japan, it's different... To, there's a different way of selling than an American. And it, right. that's that's the tweaking that we were doing. Of course, because, you know, it's something could be very offensive mm-hmm. in the East and mm-hmm. be very welcoming and even needed. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, yeah and just how, place. for instance, how direct you can be is different. Mm-hmm. In, in those two examples, you can speak that's very right. directly in America, and then in Japan you wouldn't be able to say the same thing to the owner of the company. Mm-hmm. It, it just would be different. That's right. And so then there's that level of customization, whereas in a digital platform... yeah. I was going to say it allows for less c- uh, customization, but I think it's going to allow for more customization simply be th- through technology. Yeah. So by, you know, things like AI and things like uh, smart technology is going to allow us to get to know our customers and their behaviors in a different way than we've ever known. Mm-hmm. And it won't be a filtered way through another human, a.k.a. our account manager. It will be by actually seeing what they're interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, and from that we'll actually be able to um, predict what type of things people want and serve them better and faster in some ways. Hmm. Yeah, I was listening to this guy. I can't remember his name. He's quite famous in the user research industry, but he was saying that a lot of teams, they have like one dedicated user research or one dedicated mm-hmm. user experience research. And their job is to know the customers, like yeah. the users, and everybody's kind of banking on them knowing, but it's really a team sport. Ah. You know, it was kind of nice. It's like, well, what if that person leaves with all that knowledge? <laughs> oh, my you gosh. Know? Yeah, that's right. So it should be a team sport, and everybody should know about the customers, and then you'll make better decisions. Mm. Um, but in terms, so when you say customization, you mean, like you said, in the sales, but what about the customization in the actual platform? Is that something that you have to do? Hmm. I think more, I think I, in my head, I'm, thinking about customization, I'm probably thinking more about personalization than I am about customization. Okay, yeah. Um, so when I think about personalization, I'm thinking about, hey, Avi, 
great you're back. You usually do this. And so how about right. how about this? Which is trendy now yeah. to be personalized. <laughs> yeah. And apparently it's going to be a big thing in 2020. Yeah. So that's, that's what I'm thinking about. When I think about customization, that will play out a little bit on the platform, but pr- not on not on the asset itself, mm, but okay. about, uh, so specifically, for instance, I think about markets that we don't sell to or certain things that we can't, there's tariffs that, that would prohibit us from selling a certain ingredient in there. That's not about... The actual platform. Okay. Yeah. So I'm thinking with a background of engineer, you tell mm-hmm. me customization, I'm like, okay, they can see different things, they can do different things, but it's really a standard product, personalized. Yeah, because you can handle some of that stuff. You can handle it. Mm. Access information through licenses, so it's okay. not from, it's not from the platform itself. Mm. It's the more about allows. B- yeah, it's about having different rooms in there, and some people, some rooms you can get into, and some rooms you can't. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's more about access rather than anything else. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, that does completely. I, I was just like, <laughs> my, I got influenced by my background, <laughs> and then I realized <laughs> we weren't talking about the same thing. Um, <laughs> is it live? Uh, yep. So it is live. So we have implemented agile ways of working, mm-hmm. which means that we are uh, continually, continually building and releasing on a regular basis. So it's live in Greater China and Southeast Asia and. Mm-hmm. Middle East and Africa and America. So it, it's, yes, it's live globally. And um, we're, it's not end to end yet because we're building and learning and continuing to build. We've really focused our attention so far post sales activities. So helping customers find their orders and track when they're gonna, going to arrive. Um, it's been focused on the access to information. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been more operational information to date. Um, another thing that the customers can get is docu- documentation. So it's, it's just it's like having access to information um, rather than having to request it. If it's a product that wasn't there before, yeah. it will be welcomed. Information over non-information is always welcomed in a business yeah. context. Well, I think the other thing, if we think about human-centered design, the reason we started to build at this part of the customer journey is because that's where the area of biggest tension was. Mm. So customers weren't saying, oh, well, help me help me do something else. Help me, I'm thinking of examples. They did say it, but not as often. So for instance, another thing, because some customers were saying, help me build a recipe. So they're saying that, but they were also saying, that we need to get the basics right. Mm. And some of the basics, like track my order, felt like we could not do it um, because um, as consumers, we all now can see where our orders are. We can look on my account and we can look at our, um, our shopping history and that's influencing what our manufacturers, our customers are expecting. Mm. Um, so the fact that... Um, a shipment's coming from New Zealand, and it might hit in um, it might be here in December, but it might not get here to January. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see when we get a little closer. Isn't good enough. They, yeah, <laughs> they kind of want to know mm. when they're you know when the ship's going to arrive so that they can plan uh, their production. Right. So of course, before we do the fancy stuff, we needed to just make sure that people were com- our customers were comfortable that their basic needs are met. Um, and so in that way, when you ask about how it's going, um, the intent is by building things that the customers want, that it's we get a pull from customers and it's less of a push from us um, to try the new technology. Because, mm, I mean, you, um, you saw it as a need anyway. Mm. And it's true that um, as consumer, we do change our behavior and then we come to work and we're like, what is this? I want to be able to see my shipment. Like it's the most basic stuff, That's right? right? What we want to enable is that customers have um, a, a way to engage with us digitally as well as um, with our people on the ground in market. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not an intent; it's not our intent to replace our account teams, but to enhance 
um, enhance the experience of working with Fonterra. Mm -hmm. So the dream is um, from everything from finding what ingredients we have, thinking of helping customers think about how they can use those ingredients, helping them understand what the price is and what best meets their needs through to track my order, um, raise a complaint if they need to, um, and then reorder. All of that could be offered in addition to working with the account teams. Mm-hmm. Um, so then they, you know, they could work back and forth. Some, uh, one of the things about being a New Zealand-based global company is um, time. And so sometimes mm-hmm. people just want, or an, another side of the world, and they just want information. Yep. And, that can, and they like the control of, of getting it themselves and not having to call someone and then, you know, and waiting and that type of thing. So it, it's it's really just intended to to improve um, customers' access and control and the whole experience. Yeah, the whole experience. And since it touches almost every part of your business, of, mm. of Fonterra's business, mm. I can imagine this to be a massive project. So you have to come at it sec- different section at a time because otherwise it's overwhelming. It's so overwhelming. Yeah, it's not. We never have lack of things to do. The, yeah. the day-to-day conversations is making sure we stay focused and deliver one thing at a time. Yeah. And maintaining the staff to make sure they're still in the standards and yeah. then delivering new things. And it's, I'm sure the list is never oh, and, that's, and you talked a little bit about that human-centered transformation. That's, that's, that's the stuff that continues to evolve with us because just because we, we did some research up front, as we're making decisions on a daily, weekly, quarterly basis, we need to go back and continue to enrich mm those insights because those will continue to be our, our North star and tell us what we should do next. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, again, it, it just helps weed out the distractions and to focus on what really matters. Yeah. And yeah, what will deliver the most value. Mm. Um, and it's easier to make decision when it's based on research or on your customers, what they yeah. want. Cause you know, we like something specific because of our background and, you know, living in our bubble. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it's easy to say, well, no, we don't have time for this. That's what they want. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which is very helpful. How do you personally and professionally continue to learn, evolve yourself? Mm-hmm. And how do you, I find it, well, when I was an employee, you get stuck into your work and yeah, you do learn new things at work, but do you, how do you expand your horizons yourself? Mm-hmm. And if it's something that is important to you, and if it is, do you encourage your team? to do so? And if so, how? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's important. I will say that thinking it's important and doing something about it is two different things. (laughs) Because I've always thought it was important to expand um, my horizons and learnings, but there's been parts, times in my life when I don't make time for it. Mm. So with that said, what I'm focused on now is um, just meeting new people, which sounds kind of simple, but it's hard. Um, it's hard as an expat, it's hard for somebody that works in a big organization that's all consuming. Mm -hmm. Um, I can imagine. So talking to more people, um, and doing it in an authentic way is really what I'm focused on. I'm not much of a networker. Mm. You don't go around a room and just give business cards. (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, I can't, it's it's hard for me even to to show up to a room. Yeah. (laughs) Trying to make a quota of meetups a day. Um, so externally, not so necessarily ex- internally. It's into both. both. I'm focused externally, but I've also made the effort, making a conscious effort internally as well, mm-hmm. just to see what people are working on and what's interesting to them. Um, mentoring is one way that I learn. Is um, so finding people that are in just a different frame of mind or a different state of life and seeing what's important to them is important to me in my learning. Um, and in terms of how we are incorporated into the team, it's something we talk about all the time, to be honest, and making sure that people make time to go to meetups or conferences or whatever their thing is, because people um, learn in different ways. Some people want to read a book, um, and some people want to do it in other ways. Um, so we, we don't over-formalize it because I almost feel like development plans are, I don't know, I feel like 
They're and if it's almost forced, out of date now. And also if it's forced, I don't think it's as effective. If somebody is mm. forced to go no. to a conference and it's like, well, you have to go and you're going to yeah. learn something rather than just if you're interested, if there's something that interests you out there to go, you. yeah, just come and tell us and, yeah, sure, we'll fund it or we'll, yeah. you can take the time off to go. Well, that's right, right. It makes me reflect just how work has changed as well because I don't feel like we're saying, here's your goals, but here's your development plan. It kind of all works together mm-hmm. now. And I think if they can, if you create enough space and they can find what seeds them and the stuff that they love about work, um, the happier they're going to be. Mm-hmm. And so I think That's that true. type of education and growth is all part of that. Mm. So it's kind of just getting to know what, you know, different people and what fuels them. And, and in terms of work, how, how do you guys step on top of the... So we do it. Bec- so part of people going, making sure that we hire people that are curious and that want and encouraging people to go out and learn, that's one way you do it. Okay, so if you want a job at Fonterra... This is... <laughs> well, with us, yeah, different teams are different. Different teams, but Lori's team is the best. Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, I, curiosity is important. Mm-hmm. Um, then you've got diversity is important. So diversity for me is diversity in thought and interest. And I yeah. think so all creating that right melting pot is important. And then on top of that, then that next circle around there is different vendors you have and different partnerships that you have. That bring in new ideas, mm. and then there's a whole another layer around that in my eyes, where it's just people you don't know that are trying to get in, and I haven't been great at accepting all of those type of knocks on the door because I'm not mm. sure how to vet that type of thing, <laughs> because especially with LinkedIn, you get people wanting oh, to yeah. talk to you, and um, and it's very uh, cultural as well. Like I don't yeah. know, I feel like especially in the Kiwi culture. It's very much relationship-based. Like if somebody, you know someone and yeah. they recommended you, it works much better. Mm-hmm. Um, community and yeah. relationship. Yep. But you have to kind of have that in order to get places. Yeah, well, it certainly gives you a, a foot A better up. chance. Yeah. Yeah. So in your team, I mean, speaking of mm. the, the team that, um, that we're talking about, um, who is in your team? Like what type of roles do you believe? Uh, product on? owners. Okay. So people that are making day-to-day decisions on what features are built and what customers want, mm-hmm. business development, oh, operations. Um, so j- we sell products on existing platforms to people that make sure that the products are up at the right price and are available. Um, and then in the wider team, we've got a digital delivery team. For each product owner? No. Oh, okay. So we have one team of techos that help build um, the features that the product owners are um, designing with customers. Mm. So when you say product owners, is it usually one person is in charge on a few features? Yeah, not, we've, we've been running this, and this is specific to the, um, to the customer platform we're building, and we've been has a team about 18 months and we've changed this three times already. Right, yeah. I mean, you experiment. I mean, that's well, good you, though. I yeah. like that. that we're trying pivot. to figure out what works. <laughs> <Yes>. So, <laughs> and it's funny. And so I, I think it's all part of the journey because I don't think anything's not worked. I just feel like you can, with, you can more be mature, better. It's just different. Yeah. Mm. So product owners are currently aligned um, to kind of a, I would call it a product type uh, in that way. So we've got someone that's really focused on the customer experience and how we're engaging. Um, we've got somebody else that's focused on making sure customers are logging in. And what that really actually means is making sure there's something in there for customers to log in to see, <laughs> help implement the change. And then we have somebody that's more focused on um, the 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 part of the journey that we really want to focus on this fiscal year. So it's kind of broken up like that, if that's useful. And and do they, so they talk to the customers. The reason I'm asking is because in other places I know, I mean, every place has a different Mm -hmm. hierarchy of how, you know, sometimes it's a little team with the Mm -hmm. development and designer, and then on top of that is a product owner, Mm -hmm. and on top of that there's a product manager, Mm -hmm. oh, well, a GM, Mm -hmm. and then 
you know, it just keeps going up. <laughs> we all speak to customers in different ways. Mm. So we've got somebody that's more focused on the design. Mm-hmm. So they're speaking to have less customer interaction, but some. Okay. Then we have somebody that is really focused on people that we've already rolled out to and really keeping them going and <laughs> making sure that if they're having issues that we're feeding that back in mm-hmm. and if they have any suggestion, we're feeding that back in. And yeah. are these individual people? Mm-hmm. Okay. So and they're not just teams. They're just individual people with different... Well, they have... They, we've, we have... So we work in a matrix and we've got <laughs> kind of teams around them. I, I kind of would almost... I guess they are teams. I'm tempted to say virtual teams, but they're, they're teams. Yeah. Um, so, they, yeah, there's a group around of different people around subjects. different subjects. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and they're all in the product space mm-hmm. and you were more into the vision. Me, me. Yeah, yeah, you, you. Uh, so we have a product manager that uh, over sits across all of that mm-hmm. so that we can see more a higher view of, yeah. of what's going on so we make better decisions. Mm-hmm. Where I sit is what we call the control tower. Oh, <laughs> I, <know>. I like <laughs> that. Yeah, <thanks. laughs> um, yeah, so focused on stakeholder management, making sure the steering committee is happy and well communicated to, uh, thinking about the big picture, where are we going, how does this fit with um, the, the overall strategy, mm. and uh, are we hitting our targets? Yeah. And is your team, all of them are based in New Zealand? Yeah. We do have champions in market so we do Mm. um we do have people that are accountable in market for what we're trying for for the impact that we're going after so um that's how we roll out that's how we one way we get the word out internally so we when we think about our customers we almost think about our sales team as one of our customers as well as our customer Mm. customers because we we want both to be happy yeah Awesome. So you mentioned mentoring before. Um, how do you find time and motivation to do that? Like what what drives you to become a mentor? You mm. you talked about it briefly. Mm. Uh, what brought you to be to say, oh, you know what? I, I would love to do that. Uh, mm. um, so how do you find time? I'm a strong believer if you make time for whatever you value. So whether it's exercise or going out with your friends, whatever you make time for, especially as you get busier in your life, whatever's at the top, it, you just fit it in. Mm-hmm. I've also reframed things like mentorship as part of my job, not extracurricular. Mm. Um, so I believe it's important that we, uh, yeah, we just help people along the road, and also being really honest and knowing that I get something out of it as well. It's not. Mm. Yeah, that's what I'm also asking. But um, is it a lot of internal mentoring or also external? Both. Both. Yeah, yeah. and I do like both. And what does it bring you specifically? Because obviously... It's just a different point of view. Mm. It's a different different point of view. It's a a reality check. It provides you perspective. Mm. And, uh, yeah, there's times where you think, oh, God, like I've got a hundred things to do. Yeah. Maybe I can move out this coffee. Mm. Um, most of the time, it's always, most of the time it is a great conversation. And the other thing about mentor-mentee relationships is they all have a life cycle. So it's not like committing okay. to them and then it's forever. They all have, their the ones that have worked well for me, they have a purpose, an intent of what, um, what the person wants to get out of it, and then at some point they come to an end and they naturally die, and that's it's just part of okay, it. And so being honest about that. Yeah. So how do they find it? Is it part of like a framework that you're part of, or no? Or it, it's, it's just, just it's hap- really organic. It's just, yeah. Okay. And it's no hard feelings, and yeah, yeah. So if somebody, if somebody wow, that maybe we were working together, and it kind of drifts off, and then that's just it's all part of it. Can you give us a an example? It doesn't necessarily have to be real. Yeah. But of how somebody just, do they just reach out? Like you say on LinkedIn, you, you don't know, you know, somebody just knocks on uh, your door. So my stuff has so been more it? formal, the, thing, the mentor programs I've been involved with. Okay. So for instance, uh, Auckland University Business School has a mentor-mentee program for women. 
Okay. And so they seek out mentors from the business community and they um, connect those women with mm -hmm. uh, female students mm -hmm. and um, get them ready for their first year out of university. So that's formal. Uh, in Fonterrets, there's some things that are formal. So I've got one, we were trying out a new robot Ooh. in the organization where it's matching uh, females. I think it's just females. No, I think it was just females, just around around our... The whole Fonterra. Yeah, that's cool, of, I like that. And then is just, it necessarily mentee or just like, let's grab a coffee and get to know you? It was mentor-mentee. Okay. So I've done that. And so I've got, I have more working, I've been paired up with someone that way. Mm -hmm. And then if it, within the organization, it can be more informal too, as well. So it may be somebody approaches right. or it may be somebody's manager approaches. And you can do it that way as <laughs> You well. need to mentor this person. Well, I don't know. <laughs> well, then just say, oh, I think this is a good fit. Maybe grab a coffee and it. It has to, okay. you know, if, it, yeah. if it's easy, you do it. And mm -hmm. then and then I think the cycle thing would be would make sense because, for example, if they're doing it on their business yeah. year or yep. when they're learning a specific thing and then when it's over, they move on or something. Yeah, yeah, because some people are really interested in, like, figuring out what their next step is and then they kind of, they want someone to bounce ideas off and then they kind of phase out of it and they're on to something else. Mm. Mm. And do you seek out mentors as well? Yeah, I yeah I do. So I've got people that I probably that I see as mentors, but we haven't said you and I, I you're the mentor, I'm the mentee. We haven't yeah. formal, we haven't explicitly <laughs> said that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. it's just bouncing ideas with people mm -hmm. and getting a different perspective. Yeah, there's this whole idea of sponsorship that I'm that's kind of going around as mm. well. Not necessarily in Fonterra, but in the podcast that I listen to in the readings, and this idea that women need more sponsorship, and that's a different thing than mentorship. That's somebody that's really advocating for you. Um, and I do believe there's something about finding sponsors in an organization, um, particularly in this conversation we're having around getting more females in leadership roles. And I think mm -hmm. something like that could be really healthy if done in the right way. Mm. Yeah, I would support that too. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I'm biased or anything. <laughs> um, fantastic. All right, so we're getting really close to the end of our interview. Um, I did want to ask you one question, but it's more of a general question mm -hmm. through your whole journey. So from the get-go, you were really into designing for your customers, understanding your customers. Is that something, do you know where it came from? Do you know where I think the first time I was exposed to it. Mm. And it certainly wasn't introduced as human-centered. So when I, made, when I first joined Nestle and was training to be a salesperson, um, well, throughout that whole time, I had the, the, the best manager I probably have ever had um, and mentor. She taught me about this concept of people having personal needs. And I don't know what, I'm sure it's covered in books somewhere. But she would talk to me about selling and talking to people based on understanding their personal needs. Mm -hmm. And in that context, it was talking about some people are really, um, it's about safety and making sure that they feel safe about the decision they're making. And other people, it's about affiliation. And they want to know that um, everybody around them is going in the same direction. And other people, they make decisions based on power because they want to be seen as the pivotal point person. And other people make decisions on achievement because they really want to be seen. So it's that idea of like understanding. Um, the personal, personal motives? Yeah. So in that way, it's more like how do, you, how, do you, how do you get underneath what, what a person motivates a person? Mm. And in that way, you're creating a pull rather than a push. And I think that's kind of where it all come from for me. Mm. And I think it is coming from a, a sales perspective in terms of, or an influencing perspective of, wouldn't it be easier if I just find out what a person's trigger points are and help solve for that or help make things easier for them mm -hmm. instead of going down a path of resistance? <laughs> And for me also, it's very science-based mm. as well. And it's, um, if I think about it that way, so it's like, why would you not do that? Exactly, it just makes sense. It's <laughs> yeah. common sense, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Amazing. All right. 
to our last question, which is our same question. Okay. <laughs> and it is, um, who would you like to live for a day and why? I'd like to live someone's final day. Wow. I think I would like to know what's important at the end of life. <laughs> and I, I'm sorry if that's too deep, but I think that's I would amazing, like to know. Though. I'd like to be able to say, what, have that perspective of what was important. Like, what's it all about? And that would allow me to come back and probably make some better life choices and help me just prioritize better. I, it'd be wow. awesome to be able to, you know. That is are so you, deep and I awesome. I love it. <laughs> are you scared at the end? Are you, do you, are you regretful? Like, what, you know, mm. I'd love to know what that's like. Wow, mm. you're making me now reflect on my life. <laughs> so that's, that's where I've well, come that's to, fantastic. so I went pretty deep with it. I love that. Mm. Amazing. Thanks. All right, um, we're at the end of our podcast. Uh, we want to thank Lori so much for coming. Again, I'm saying we, but Stephen is not here. I'll keep mentioning it and he hates <laughs> it. Um, thank you so much for being here. We really loved hearing your experience and your journey. And um, we'll put your links down if you don't mind okay, and people yeah. could contact you and maybe won't feel like a knock-knock on LinkedIn because <laughs> you know they know a piece of you through the, yeah, that's through right. the podcast. Um, and thank you and we'll see you all um, next time. Thanks for the opportunity. Cheers. Bye.